Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Game Week 1 review show of the World Soccer Talk podcast. The opening weekend has seen nine games played, with the game between Chelsea and West Ham yet to be played tomorrow, Monday. In order to review all nine games, as well as preview Monday night's game, I'm joined by Kristen Hanash and Morgan Green. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. In section one, we'll talk about the game of the week, as well as some of the Saturday kickoffs. In section two, we'll discuss the remainder of the games, including the United versus Burnmouth game, Manchester United, that is, uh, and some of the not-so-glamorous Saturday fixtures. In a short section three, we'll preview Monday's game as well as get to a couple of questions we got from Twitter. So let's start with section one here, Chris. The game of the week was Arsenal-Liverpool. Lots of game, lots of goals in this game. Uh, coming into this game, Chris, uh, history was completely against Liverpool. Arsenal had lost only one of the last nine against Liverpool. Liverpool had only won once in the last 20 away to Arsenal. And once that first goal went in, once the PK was saved and, and uh, Walcott ended up scoring a minute later, it almost looked like history was about to repeat itself. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I, I think, honestly, to watch the game, I thought it was incredibly even and, and it was a little bit unfortunate on, on Liverpool for the most part. I actually think this performance is what they will be like at their peak. Maybe not defensively, but at least Wait, from an Liverpool attacking Liverpool or standpoint. Arsenal? Liverpool. Okay. Um, I think a, a lot of people talked about the signings in the summer. Um, and I think at their worst, we'll talk about how anonymous Vinaldum was, which he was for good parts of this game. But I think at their best, we will just focus how on, on how fluid their attack looks and also how dangerous Sadio Mane is because he gives them, I think, a, a pace change, but also an ability to stretch teams. And I think actually what you can say is, yeah, maybe the Liverpool team of, 12 months, 24 months ago, collapses when that goal goes in. But I I just didn't feel as if it was done. I predicted 2-1 um, before the game. And I was wholly confident of Liverpool still winning that game um, after the penalty or was saved, but also then all, also after Theo Walcott scored. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, Morgan, I, I felt that uh, the first 30 minutes, well, first 20 minutes were dominated by Arsenal. I thought Liverpool were very slow out of the blocks. And the last 20 minutes were also dominated by Arsenal. But in general, in the middle, that middle section in this three-act football match was absolutely dominated by Liverpool. So so a lot to unpack there. It was. And, you know, it kind of, 
played out almost like an Arsenal season in one game, to Ooh, be honest. Ooh, Morgan with the hot take already. Well, I mean, it was thrown out a couple of times on Twitter, and it, I, I think it is a little bit true when you mm-hmm. – uh, when you really look at the game as a microcosm, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Arsenal came out first game of the season. They were raring to go, you know, they ended up getting their goal scrappily and then things just kind of fell apart from there. I think with that defense and the worrying on, I think as the game wore on and Liverpool kind of poke and prodded and, you know, saw what Rob holding and Callum chambers had in them, they kind of gathered that. And again, you could see kind of, Jurgen Klopp gesticulating on the sidelines, what to do, where to go, and how to do it. And then it was just a matter of, you know, Liverpool putting together a couple of passes as we saw in that middle of the game and scoring those kind of, and you could argue this, Arsenal-esque goals against them that really kind of put them back. And then, you know, once you hit 4-1, at that point, you think, well, it's done and dusted. Arsenal said, well, we have nothing to lose. Let's go ahead and play. And then you saw good play from Arsenal again. I mean, if they come into every game playing like they have nothing to lose, I think they right. put up a heck of a better fight than they have than they would have in that middle kind of fifty-ish minute stretch. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, and Chris, let me get your thoughts on this because, in some ways, every game that Arsenal loses, we will have the same analysis we've had for the last ten years, and that's not going to change. Nothing, nothing that happens will change that. Um, so, I guess what I want to ask you is. With the context of the players that were missing for that starting eleven, um, mm-hmm. talking about Giroud and uh, you know the, uh, Murdasacker and uh, Ozil, obviously, and you know lots of lots of players who were missing. At least six starters, I think, were missing. With that, with those players and the fact that Liverpool were close to full strength, they were missing Sturridge and maybe a defender. Can we actually excuse a loss for Arsenal here? a good Liverpool team against a good Arsenal team that was lacking half of their starting eleven. I think the most telling absentees were the defenders, but then also Giroud, because it meant you didn't have an outball. And mm-hmm. one of the things I think you need against this Liverpool team is someone that can actually take the pressure off from the back four. And Giroud, for all his faults and all of his critics, I think we can agree he's a very good target man and he can actually hold the ball up. I have such a, a conflicted opinion on, on this Arsenal situation because of what you said in the question then, Napoon. It's a great point that they're missing a lot of starters. The lack of activity, though, is a concern. The lack of depth right. this squad seems mm-hmm. to have. Of course, Koscielny, Mertesacker, Gabriel being out. To lose three starting centre-backs or three relatively first-choice right. centre-backs, that's going to impact any squad. I don't contest that. I think the concern or the frustration that emanates from Arsenal fans is the fact that really they've only signed Granit Xhaka this this season. And Sky put up a, a graphic that illustrated this, the spending of these respective teams. And, and I accept that at times it can seem as if that's all we relate these things to, is how much has a team spent. The gulf in numbers between Manchester United and Arsenal was huge. I think it was about half, actually. I think if you have those aspirations, you have to at least even be close to where your rivals are. I don't think that in this day and age, realistically, you can consistently be parsimonious and achieve success like that. And when you look at the holes in the squad as well, I think that's what breeds the issue. If this was actually a deep squad that had just underperformed, then we could focus solely on the tactics. But the problem, and I was talking to, to our good friend Lawrence about this, is that the frustration for Arsenal fans, I think, is... They see the same problems every season. Right. So actually, away from all of the missing players, the issue here was they lacked 
an aggressiveness and an intensity amongst the team that Liverpool had. And I think that's a, a huge issue for them moving forward. Yeah, while we can talk about the signings they should have made, Morgan, I, I think that's a very good point Chris raises. I think one thing that we really cannot talk about too much today, especially based on this game, are the tactical uh, ta- is the tactical setup of both these managers right now. Both of these manager, managers are actually in the unique position of having been at their clubs for more than three months before the start of the season. Uh, Klopp took over, Klopp's been there for a good eight months. Wenger's been there a little bit longer than that. Uh, longer than about yeah. eight times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even more than eight times, 21 years. So the, I guess what I want to uh, point out is that when I was watching this game, I noticed that this was basically a game where individual talent stood out and not tactical systems. Those goals, the the, the PK save by Mignolet, the Coutinho goal, which is, you know, I don't know if we'll see a better free kick this this year. Oxlade-Chamberlain's brilliant uh, uh, goal, uh, Mane's goal. All of those were moments that were set up by brilliant individual performances. But as a whole, I thought both of these teams struggled to have a cohesive unit in a tactical system. And I guess the real question is, you can kind of excuse... Liverpool a little bit, but you really cannot excuse a manager that's been there for 21 years to show up without a coherent tactical system. And I do agree with you as far as that goes. Wenger should know better, especially the fact that he's been in the league this long. I just think that, you know, again, with all the problems they had on the defense, they needed guys like Elneny and uh, Kokolan in there to be that shield in front of the two young center backs that were going in and starting together for the first time. And they brought in Rob Holding, what, a month ago, mm-hmm. month and a half ago, I think. So I think that kind of played a little bit into it. But again, like you said, Arsene Wenger's done this long enough to know, okay, well, if I need to have a shield in front of my back, you know, my back four to do this, then, you know, maybe we need to start playing it more towards the wingers and take, you know, get the ball up forward, hold play up a little bit more, kind of to ease the pressure on those guys. And just, we just didn't really see it. And I think mm-hmm. that, Given that, with you know Liverpool's uh, tactical ineptitude as well in this game, right. that did up to hey, you know, at just at this point, you know, individual performances are going to do it, and they just got more individual performances out of Liverpool than you got out of uh, Arsenal at the end of the game, and that's what it really came down to. Yeah. I think Napoon raises a good point as well, though the idea of individuals. I think it is a very good point that this game was about individuals, and that in turn then bleeds into the notion that. Actually, if you look at Arsenal's squad, there are a variety of individual game changes in that sense. Right. Especially in the, Alexis well, Sanchez in the attacking is, midfielders, they do, yeah. I think Alexis Sanchez is, is one that can do that and has done that for Arsenal. You look at Liverpool, though, and you would say maybe Sadio Mane is a, a one that can do that because right. of his sheer speed. Coutinho has that ability in him. And I think that almost reinforces the frustration of Arsenal fans is that we should be going out and buying players that can actually help us on the days that we just don't perform as a team and, and can change the game individually because that's what a, a lot of the biggest and best clubs in this league have. Yeah, and that's what they had done for several years in a row when they mm-hmm. you know they go out and brought in Ozil and then the next year they went out and brought in you know Alexis. It all started with Santi Cazorla and they just haven't done that this year. It just seems to be a willingness not to pay over the moon for a lot of these guys when they should really be doing it. I mean, you saw today... Or you may have seen today, uh, Lacazette went out and scored a hat trick in his opening game for Lyon. I mean, that's a guy that Arsenal fans have been clamoring for 
for another striker. You got to think a guy like that probably could may have evened it up today. Who knows? I I can't help but feel that Mares will be an Arsenal player before the end of the the um the transfer window, but I don't know if that really oh. solves the striker problem. But here's a, another quick question before we get to a couple of Twitter questions. Chris, for Liverpool, uh, uh, an issue they've had for a long time, and this has not gotten wet better. In fact, I would argue it's gotten worse under Klopp, is their inability to close out games in a, in a, uh, in a way that, you know, a Mourinho can do or a Conte can do or Guardiola. You know, we can name all these managers who we know can close out games. This showed up again today. It, it was very, very obvious in the in the Europa Cup final. Today, they were up 4-1, cruising at that point, creating chances. And then it got to the point where they really had to shut down shop to uh, make sure they got uh, three points and barely did that. I think part of that is a, is a teething problem. I think it will improve in time. But when, when do we stop with the teething stuff? Because he's been there eight months. So when is when is it teething over and when are we getting to you know kids saying their first words? I don't know. I, I'm losing the analogy here. That, that essentially <laughs> raised a child. <laughs> yeah. That comes at, at different times for different projects. I, I think the other issue you have and this is not something to do with time is that actually because of the intensity they play with, it doesn't always provide for the most structure defensively. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it really tires the team out as a whole if you watch it, and it means that you can't really defend as a unit. One of the things that I think I've really enjoyed reading about this summer is is kind of Guardiola's ethos and where it has come from and where it's been influenced by. And there was a coach he worked with at Dorados in Mexico who really heavily influenced him and, and basically explains attacking of defense, not as single units, mm-hmm. but as one entire kind of, you know, uh, machine. And I think that's part of the problem is that the way that Klopp sets up the attack and the team yeah. as a whole, it means that too often the defense and the attack become isolated. Mm-hmm. And that means it's easier to attack against them as the game wears on because they become more tired. And I think you look at last season, the goals that uh, Vinaldum scored against Liverpool. Right. Those were two. The what the second one in particular was a, a really quick counterattack, and I think goals like that will often be scored against Liverpool and facilitated by the fact that they attack with such intensity that eventually the t- the team and the midfield and attack specifically just become so tired they can't operate fluidly. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I think I think I I got a lot of hate on Twitter when I brought up the fact that. Uh, for a lot of teams, the the level of Klopp's work, uh, required work rate is just not sustainable for a lot of players on that Liverpool team, including the likes of Sturridge, who is the perfect example of that. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think someone like Henderson can probably go for 80 minutes, but 90 minutes, but uh, I don't know if a lot of those players can. Um, so good point. Morgan, let's get to a question from our friend Jason Schrader, who's an Arsenal supporter. Uh, and he asks, why is Wenger so stupid with subs? Uh, what was the reason for not taking Coquelin off? Well, I mean, it was kind of like what I said before. You know, Arsenal needed that shield, especially mm-hmm. if they were going to make a comeback. I know you want to try and get, you know, kind of throw things out the window on there. So, I mean, I can understand maybe keeping him in. But, again, you need to remember the context that we're at this far in the season. This is the first game of the year. Right. You know, you're not fighting. You're not two points off of the title. You know, you're not, you know, a point off of Champions League or anything like that. I mean, there's no reason to take that risk of him getting a second, you know, Hard and then going down another man for the next game. Um, you know, I really think that 
if he wanted to make that impact sub to kind of keep that defense, you know, keep that shield in front of the defense, he could have taken Pokalan off for Xhaka. Um, but uh, I mean, I don't know. Other than senility, I'm not really <laughs> sure at this point mm-hmm. why he wouldn't have taken him off, given that it is the beginning of the year and you know he's already got a yellow card and possibly a knee injury. Um, I, think- it, I, just, I, I really don't know. I mean, I can't explain it. I'm not Arsene Wenger. I'm not 150 years old, so I don't know what it's like <laughs> to be. There. I I can't help but also wonder if that that was calculated in the sense that he knew he needed to go for goals but at the same time it was 4-1 or 4-2 at that time and he probably didn't want it to end up being 6-2 7-2 which uh you know could have happened i mean liverpool at that moment around the 55th 60th minute looked like a team that were going to score five or six goals so uh that's the only other thing i can think of chris the next question is from pat devitt and this is perfect for you because you've predicted that this will and you and not you alone but a lot of people have predicted this to be the case uh but he asks, is this the beginning of the end for Arsene Wenger uh I think it will be his last season at the club I again there's a lot of games to play I'm, I'm certainly not forming this opinion of what has occurred today I think you can't continue with him given what they've achieved I think the club as it stands now it's it's expectations have improved dramatically and Mm -hmm. if anything I think the fact that Tottenham have have very much closed the gap on them as rivals football is a funny sport now you're almost constantly battling for supporters and constantly trying to win over the next generation and I think the the globalization of the game and all that kind of thing as well as on home soil you're you're battling with Chelsea with Tottenham for superiority for all that kind of thing in, in London and I just get this feeling that if, if Arsenal keep going the way they are, they will not be the dominant side in London for much longer. I don't think as it stands they're the dominant side in London. Right. They're one of three rivals. And if they want to even try and push ahead and be the, the front horse in, in what is a tight race, they realistically need to replace him. Yeah, the purist in me hopes... Sorry, Morgan, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, the big thing that you need to remember too, I think, with this whole banker thing is the ownership group. Mainly that Steve Franke is still the main guy in charge there and somebody who, as we've seen over the last several years, is content with that fourth place, do what you have to do to maintain it. I think that if Arsenal does end up finishing fourth place, you'll see you'll see Wenger there as long as they keep finishing in those top four spots. I really do truly believe that. Um, The second it doesn't work, possibly it could be the end so I think that really you know again the performances and everything they are what they are but Arsenal still are a team that could possibly end up finishing fourth until they don't I think you're still going to see Wenger there no matter what yeah and in Chris's defense I think he he did say he did predict that Arsenal would finish out the top four which is consistent with his belief that uh, this will be his last season so um, so yeah Morgan but we don't take your predictions seriously so that's the only difference. <laughs> All right. Before we continue, guys, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, SeatGeek. We've some really exciting news to share about our sponsor, SeatGeek, which is that SeatGeek is now the official ticketing partner for Major League Soccer. SeatGeek is working with the league and its teams to introduce a new ticket buying experience that will make it easier for you to buy, sell, share, and access tickets to MLS matches. From personal experience, this Friday, one of the greatest bands of all time, the Beach Boys will be playing in Indianapolis. And instead of going to all those other sites which charge you exorbitant fees at checkout, I went straight to my SeatGeek app and picked up tickets for me and my friend. 
Yes, contrary to what you might have heard, I have friends. The reason I go to SeatGeek is SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work and you save time and money. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, step one, download the SeatGeek app. Step two, Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Step three, enter promo code WSTPOD. And step four, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So go ahead, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WSTPOD today. Morgan, let's uh, switch to talking about defending champions Leicester City and their loss to newly promoted Hull City. Across the board of every predictive, uh, everyone that's done predictions, I saw whole city finishing last at the end of the season. So you'll have to excuse everybody's surprise, not just Leicester City fans, that Hull actually pulled this off and and ended up winning. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, especially with everything that's going on with Hull City, you know, getting rid of Steve Bruce the way they did, uh, basically pulling an Arsenal and not signing anybody this summer, even though they absolutely needed it because of all the injuries that they've had. Right. Uh, you know, Mike Phelan's come in, and I think he's kind of instilling that, all right, boys, look, no one's giving us a chance, kind of doing the Phil Brown, uh, you know, the sit down and everything like that, pointing at everybody just to get everybody up. You know, I mean, this is probably going to be one of their biggest matches of the year against the champions, and they came out and smacked them in the mouth. So I mm-hmm. think that this was a game that, you know, whole City played with a lot more emotion than – Lester did, and I think that that kind of carried them through, and they were able to get the result, and they, and they did it fantastically. I mean, with an overhead kick that started off and, you know, just giving up a penalty, which kind of, you know, takes it away a little bit. But, yeah, right. I mean, they didn't know Leicester City to score from open play, and that's something that, you know, last year Leicester basically did whenever they wanted to. They scored from open play. So, you know, I think this it was more of an emotion thing with uh, Hull City to come out and stamp it and say, look, you know, y'all picked us for last, but – we're going to do everything we can. We're going to fight to the last man. And that's exactly what they did. I feel like because this was the first game of the new season, there was an, a ridiculous amount of hot takes about Leicester after this game. People talking about how, you know, last year was a fluke and, you know, this is never going to happen again. People who support Spurs and teams that almost uh, pipped them right at the end, uh, making it seem like, uh, you know, it, it was uh, Leicester City didn't deserve to win the title. I don't have a hot take. In my opinion, this was just an unlucky day. If you watched this game, and I feel like a lot of people did not based on what they tweeted and said, the first half, Leicester City created a ton of chances. Vardy should have scored, Musa should have scored, um, and uh, Mares should have scored. He did score the PK eventually. Last season, all of those shots were going in. Sometimes you just don't have the luck, Chris. And I think that's we should contextualize this result and not pretend like this this is the end of uh, you know whatever Leicester City era that might have existed i agree to you i agree with you to a certain extent i think my issue with this is and this happens a lot with champions and i've spoken to a few different uh players that have won a league and then played the next season about this after you collect that title things do change 
in the sense of your opponents handle you very differently. And one of the takeaway stats from last season was Leicester won the league, I, I think, with an average possession of around 38%. or right. It was definitely less than 45 I remember that. Yeah. Yesterday against Hull, they had 50% of the ball. And if you look, there's a number of instances where Danny Drinkwater in particular picks up the ball. He's kind of scanning around. He's looking for an option. He's looking for an option. And there's just nothing to, to hit. They were a lot quicker on the transition last season than they were uh, against Hull. And yet, yeah, I completely see what you're saying. There were some good chances missed. That's completely true. I also think, though, they struggled to deal with having to dictate the game in the way that it did. Um, I don't think that, that Hull were completely absent in that. Mm-hmm. They definitely played a... I also think, though, that just in general, Leicester didn't seem that comfortable trying to break a team down and, and find pockets of space that weren't obvious and I think that was something they did last season they exploited obvious pockets of space on a consistent basis Morgan one of, one of the most rampant analyses that will go out throughout the season every time Leicester City drops point is the fact that uh, Leicester City are going to be missing Conte all season who undoubtedly was terrific last season uh, Andy King just is not that level of a player but I think the, the analysis from this game shouldn't be about Conte. It should be about Snodgrass, who was excellent for Hull City. Is a player that has struggled with, with injuries throughout his career, especially knee injuries. He played as a 4-3-3. Huddleston, who's played in the Premier League before, was terrific, as was Snodgrass. So talk to me about what you saw from Hull City. Well, I saw, and again, I'll, I'll have to preface this with the fact that I was working. I did see a little bit of the game. Um, but just seeing how where Snodgrass came from, again, he was one of those guys from that really good underachieving Leeds team. Leeds United, so, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they sold off all their players up to uh, North City at that point. Um, you know, Snodgrass is a very, very good player, and I think that when he is healthy, he can be really, you know, a good Premier League quality player. It's just that whole City team has been together for quite a while now. They've had a lot of... Mm-hmm players they've had the same manager so I think that the fact that everybody is familiar with themselves they know who needs to be where when they need to be there I think that plays a lot into it I think a lot of the cohesion is what it comes down to for Hull City and I think that's going to be their biggest strength at this point um, you know that doesn't negate the fact that they should have added to the squad this year based upon what they absolutely needed but mm-hmm. there are also rumors that they're going to get taken over so we'll right. see how that all goes but I think, you know, guys like Tom Huddleston, who was, you know, again, a very, very good to decent level Premier League midfielder. You have a lot of guys who, if this team does pull it together somehow, maybe they do add some parts before the end of the year. They add some parts in January. They could finish kind of in the, they'll finish in the lower half, but they could avoid relegation at this Mm -hmm. point. They can keep up those levels. It's absolutely possible, I think. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on Hull City because they might be proving pretty much every single person, every single podcast, every single article wrong at the end of the season. Chris Everton Tottenham. Sorry, Morgan? It's like Leicester did. Just like Leicester did, yeah. Hull City, the new Leicester City. Uh, Chris Everton 1-1 Tottenham. First half was largely dominated by Everton. Uh, Everton went three at the back with Holgate and Funes Mori on either side of Jagielka. Uh, Barkley had a good outing. Delafeo had a good outing. But in general, I think uh, th- they still did struggle with the absence of of a number nine up top in in Lukaku. In part, yeah, I, th- I think what helped them was the fact that Tottenham really didn't deal with Delafeo very well. Right. I, yeah. 
his ability, I think, to really stretch them. But then also, I think Tottenham's lack of real pressure on him and, and mm. dealing with him. There was a few instances, uh, particularly in the first half, where he picked up the ball, usually from a long ball, actually, far too easily mm-hmm. um, for, for my liking if I'm a Tottenham fan. And it's a surprise because actually one of the things that stood out for me last season about Tottenham was their defence. Um, I, th- I think Janssen was fairly solid. Um, I've seen worse Premier League debuts. <laughs> the cynic in me looked at that chance that he had from the corner and thought, you should really be scoring that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then maybe that's me just demanding too much of a player. Um, that you yeah, rate very think, highly, yeah. Yeah, I, I think overall... I think overall, though, there was a lot of positives for Everton, and I can completely see why Coleman was the man they wanted to replace Martinez. I think, in many ways, they have uh, corrected the problems of Martinez in hiring Coleman. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not. This is not the first time Everton have gone back three, even in the last you know ten games. I mean, uh, just before he got fired, I think one of his last games, Everton went back to that back three. But in some ways, I can't help but feel having John Stones out of there, Morgan, uh, in some ways is helping this team because I think Everton's defense was so strongly reliant on John Stones that when he was producing the level of performance he was last season, which was not very high, I think it broke down the defensive structure of that team. And not having him there and having a young player like Holgate is actually helping them. Yeah, it's tough with John Stones because, again, he's been so highly lauded by all these teams. I mean, we've seen the 50 million pound transfers, um, you know, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester City, ending up getting him on here. I think that at this point here, John Stones is kind of his image and everything has kind of been inflated at this point to what he could be is what he is now, and he is not what he could right. be right now. That's a good I think point. That's the issue that you were, that you ran into with John Stones. Um, you know, could he be somebody that can be in the center of a back three? Could he be a guy as good as like a Leonardo Bonucci or somebody like that? Absolutely. He's still young. He still has a long time to grow. He still has a lot of experience to get under him. But I think you're right. You know, when you're putting a kid in there and you're saying, listen, you know, a kid that, again, a lot of people may not have heard of going into it. If you follow the Premier League or Everton, you've seen the name uh, a couple of times on there. But if you just put him in and simplify it for him and say, listen, this is all I need you to do. Just you know, do what you're asked, and that's all we need. Keep it simple. I think that's the biggest thing. And, again, Ronald Coleman keep, you know, playing with the keep it simple, stupid uh, kind of <laughs> tactics there with the back through the back definitely helps him out. You know, it doesn't, it, It's not something that's you – know, you're not putting too much on the plate for a kid who – you know, doesn't need that much on his plate at that point. A manager that doesn't keep it too simple is Pochettino. I, I think there's a lot of elegance in his tactical system at Tottenham. Uh, but the the goal that Tottenham did score, Chris, came from a very simple play, a, a cross, a run across the box from, uh, across from Rose, that is, a run across the box from Lamella. And uh, the second half was largely dominated by Tottenham. It was, and, and you know what it is? Watching that goal from Lamella, I don't think he scores that maybe in seasons past or seasons previous. That's crazy you say uh, that because I, I said exactly the same thing. I think that it maybe is, is a start of a new era for Lamella. Maybe it's a start, uh, maybe it's the confidence he gained during the Copa, but he, he looked that, that he wouldn't even have made that run, let alone put it in the net. I don't think he would have made that run in seasons past. Exactly. I think to show that kind of aggressive, uh, Kind of forward intent almost. He he really did kind of own that moment and dominate the centre back in a way that I, I can't think I've ever seen him do, at least for Tottenham. Um, and I think 
yeah, it's it's a, for me it's a real pat on the back for Pochettino because the guy was very quickly becoming a flop at Tottenham. There is no other way to paint this time there. Mm-hmm. And of course he deserves credit because I think he's adjusted and he's he's slowly started to understand the nuances of England compared to Serie A, which I think he was a bit naive to to begin with. But again, he is becoming a, a game changer and a difference maker for Tottenham, which is exactly what he was expected to be. Mm-hmm. And okay, Soldado in that clutch of players that they bought turned out to be an equally big signing that didn't pan out. I think long term, I think Lamella will continue to perform and I think this season he could actually be a, a really big player for, for Tottenham. Morgan, uh, the other game, next game we want to talk about to wrap up section one is the draw between Southampton and Watford. I have to start this conversation with just the highest praise for Dusan Tadic in this game. I mean, I hopefully you don't think it's hyperbole when I said when I say that in certain points in this game he looked just like Wesley Schneider. I mean, you could take out Wesley Schneider, some of Wesley Schneider's highlights, and that's how good Tadic was in this game. 40-yard passes, through passes to Shane Long and Redmond, who were playing in front of him. He was playing in that in the, in the hole, so to speak. Um, you know, tackling, uh, tracking back. I mean, every, he was terrific today. So we know his problems are injuries, but if Southampton can keep Tadic fit, I mean, they, they still have a brilliant player there, don't they? They do, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. Chris actually probably knows a little bit more about Dusan Tadic than me. I mean, I, I had only seen the stats and such through the score apps with him when he was in, uh, I believe he was in Holland playing for Twent, correct, Chris? Yeah, that's that's 20. where he kind of made his, his name. Um, he was, a, I think it was Groningen before that. Um, last season, he had only minimally lesser numbers than Dimitri Paye, and we think of how kind of pleased everyone was with his signing and excited they were about him being in the Premier League. I think Tadic kind of flew under the radar a little bit mm. last season, actually. Mm. Um, and he, he is, granted, he's not the, the quickest you'll ever see in the league, but I don't think that inhibits him at all. He is a wonderfully gifted and just creative playmaker. Mm. Um, and I think it's telling that of all the players Southampton were able to keep in the summer, he was the one that managed to, to stay because I actually think he was the most influential for them during the, the course of the last few years. Chris, what about Watford? They they went three at the back with Cathcart, Prodol, and Britos. Uh, some good build-up play, some very good build-up play for the Kapua goal. But uh, uh, I, do you think this will be another season for where we focus on Dini and Egalo? Or uh, the, the debut goal for Redmond, actually, is, is maybe what we should talk about here? Well, that's the thing. These This is a derby because these teams, I think, have had now six managers between them in three years. And normally... <laughs> When we talk about a team like that, it's because they've either just been relegated or you know they're on the cusp of being relegated. Whereas actually, these two have been able to maintain their Premier League status and actually do quite well in the process. Um, I think this season, I think Igalo will, will likely suffer a drop off. I think Dini possibly the same. I don't feel as if either is uh, in trouble of going down. Though I think they've got a good enough um, basis and infrastructure to to be okay. The back three is an interesting one. I think we might actually see a little bit more of an increase in the the fact of or the frequency of that being used in the Premier League now, um, yeah. because I think in general we're just starting to get a little bit of an improvement in terms of actual uh, managerial tactics and the quality of managers that we have in this league. Well said. When we come back for section two, we'll start off with the Bournemouth Manchester United game and talk about the rest of the games that have been completed uh, in sec- in week one of of uh, the Premier League. So hang in there. We'll be right back. 
Section 2 of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Morgan, let's start with Bournemouth versus Manchester United. Um, Manchester United winning 3-1. They were up 3-0. Uh, struggled a little bit initially. There was, there was, a, there was an echo of the LVG era of, of a not a lot of creativity. And then a silly back pass set up Mata's goal. And from that point on, uh, United looked pretty comfortable. Yeah, they did. I mean, to me, this game, it, it really kind of came down to two lucky strokes or three lucky strokes even. I mean, obviously, Francis not playing the back pass correctly and then <laughs> a Marshall mishit ball that just so <laughs> happened to Wayne Rooney. And then you've got Ibra basically saying, you know, screw it and taking a low daisy cutter all the way out, you know, from, you know, basically center field and mm-hmm. getting their three goals. I'm not going to say it all comes down to luck, but it reminded me, a little bit of kind of the old Fergie United where you did see those kind of lucky goals going in, those breaks kind of heading United's way. And I think a lot of that comes down to the type of player. Yeah. The, you know, the creativity still isn't there. You still need to work on it a little bit, but you know, in the last couple of seasons, we just didn't really see those goals where you went, God, you know, only United scores those stupid goals. (laughs) And here we see, here we saw two of them today. So I think, it really is. It comes down to that star player, that ethos, you know, that big club ethos that United have been missing for the past two, three years. Um, you know, it kind of feels like it's back now, and it seems like their star players are more than happy to take the chances and just say, see if they go in. And right now, more often than not, they're going in. Chris, he star- uh, Morgan brings up star players, and we, we need to talk about the link up between uh, Rooney and Ibra. I thought at the start of the game it was not clicking very well, and I thought uh, it was clear as day that they were still trying to make those similar runs, and there was no one uh, up top. And we actually just got a question on Twitter from uh, a Cylon. I swear that's his name. He says, uh, "Realistically, would you put Mkhitaryan instead of Rooney as the uh, central attacking midfielder for the starting eleven?" I think long term, yes. I think this is one of the more difficult things that Mourinho has to deal with. Is Wayne Rooney, while maybe not highly thought of or amongst Manchester United fans at least, is still a huge burden on the salary and all that things, and you kind of have to make him useful. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think he's anywhere near his peak. I don't think he's as poor as people like to paint out. Sure. I'm not sure, though, if he has a, a starting role in the team at its peak when it's playing at its best. And There will be days, I think, and this being probably a good one in which they're likely to dominate things, but I'd be amazed if he plays them in the closer matches. Morgan, United's midfield, I mean, we've talked about the Ibra-Rooney link or lack thereof, although they did link up a little bit. Uh, I thought the midfield was was uh, had some ebbs and flows as well in terms of their performance. Uh, I thought Fellaini had some good moments, but also some very typically Fellaini moments. And I'm guessing Pogba will walk right into that team on, on Friday. Uh, but the, yeah. on the other side with Herrera, uh, I'm not certain what the right balance is in that team because if you have uh, – so right now the options in center midfield are Fellaini, Herrera, Carrick, Pogba, and Schneiderlin. So from your perspective, who should be starting as, as the center of those two uh, of those two midfielders? I mean, if you're going to go for the obvious, you're going to put Pogba and prob- – I mean, I would argue Schneiderlin just mm. because, again, at the language – uh, you got the fact that these two play in the uh, French national team together, so there's going to be a little bit of cohesion. Oh, well, there they with. barely played together because Schneiderlin didn't play a minute. <laughs> but again, they, what I'm saying, though, is that yeah, you know, they've trained yeah. 
Yeah, they've done all that. Yeah, exactly. You didn't get a kick. Ha ha ha. Morgan Ireland sucks. <laughs> um, but you know, again, you've got you do have the cohesion. Again, you have a player, Morgan Schneiderlin, who does like to stick in and get a tackle, and that could be the guy that Jose Mourinho wants next to Paul Pogba because of the fact that he's he may want Paul Pogba to bob him forward, kind of almost in that Frank Lampard role. I know there I've had several United fans ask me if you know Pogba is going to be the new Lampard in that team if he's going to be the one scoring the goals. Could he do it? Possibly, but I think Depends somebody on how many sandwiches he eats. Yeah. Go on. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, if he gets fat, he'll still be okay. I mean, he's always got his face, right? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I would, and that's just me, I would personally put the two Frenchies there in, uh, in the midfield and let Schneiderlin go in, win all the tackles, get it up to Pogba and let Pogba go do his thing, you know, kind of freestyle like he does so well. Speaking, um, of, speaking of Frenchies, as, as Morgan puts it, Chris, we have to talk about Martial. Uh, has not had the best start, of, uh, best start of the season, including preseason, including the Euros as well. Uh, today, Bournemouth kind of struggled to keep up with him, but Martial himself had no final ball. Do you, do you worry about the future of Martial right now? Do you mean in the, the starting eleven, or just at Manchester United in general? Well, I, I don't think those two are separate things. I, I think as soon as he's out of the starting eleven, I think a, a Marcel would probably uh, angle for his um, a move to Real Madrid, which we know is his ultimate dream. Um, I think the thing with him is, and we forget this sometimes, is he's still very young. Yeah. Um, he wasn't blessed with a wealth of top-flight experience before he arrived, and actually that was a point that was hammered home nigh-weekly. Um, for very different reasons uh, before and after he came. I think there will be peaks and troughs. Consequently, there'll be games he doesn't have the greatest in terms of final product and end ball. I think what we have to focus on is is not to, to make uh, the exception the rule. So in the games that he doesn't perform expertly, I think it's unfair to then say, well, oh, well, does this mean this is the start or the end? Right. I don't think so. I think... He has enough talent. He caused enough problems to to definitely justify his uh, position in the team long term. And I think he offers them something that really no one else in that squad, at least to my mind, offers them, which mm-hmm. is the ability to go past players, carry the the ball, and break through the the lines. Yeah, I think it will be interesting because one of those two guys, that is Memphis or Martial, is on the way out of the club because they both essentially perform the same role from the left uh, as as Chris eloquently points out it's it's taking players on uh, creating opportunities so I think one of those players will be on the out, outs and uh, will be interesting we never know how it plays out I mean just because Martial had one good season doesn't necessitate that he will have another good one so watch this space Morgan let's talk about the next game uh, actually let me wrap up uh, just quick thought on Burnmouth uh, I thought uh, I had a promising debut and uh, Adam Smith had a pretty good goal so uh, Burnmouth will ha- will look at this game and and essentially uh, you know three points that they weren't planning on getting so they'll move on and continue that battle uh, under a very very good manager Morgan uh, next game West Brom winning one nothing against Crystal Palace uh, I, one of the teams that everyone was most confused, uh, was most separated on, on on how we felt they'll do is Crystal Palace. Um, same story, Morgan. They they created some chances from wide areas, including uh, Zaha, who should have buried his chance. But there's no one to finish off any of those chances up top. Same analysis as last year, I guess. Until they sign Christian Ben. Yeah, pretty That's much. That's true. Until yeah. they sign Ben. Right. That's going to be the game changer that, you know, Alan Pardew and Crystal Palace say is... Uh, 
going to switch it around. So until they get him in, they get that true big target man in there. Yeah, they probably will end up uh, struggling for goals. Now, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure if this is true either. I thought I saw earlier today that uh, Yannick Velassi, I believe, is on his way to Everton. Hmm. I think that was a Guardian thing too. That's why I kind of believed it. Um, so there's a chance that they may be losing Velassi, but gaining uh, – Gaining Benteke on there. So if they get Benteke in, I mean, you maybe see a few more of those chances finished, uh, depending on if it's, you know, the Benteke of old or is it going to be the Liverpool Benteke that we <laughs> saw? That's what it's really going to come down to. Yeah. Um, you know, West Brom, obviously, uh, who was it? It was Rondon, I think, that ended up getting the goal yeah. there. So that was a good start for him. Um, but again, now you've got Tony Pulis complaining to the press that they need to buy more players if they're going to stay up. So. Uh, it's you're right. It is kind of pretty much the same analysis at this point until they make that change. Until all the transfers are finished, we won't uh, we won't see the finished product. Yeah, from a West Brom perspective, I, I think uh, Rondon, of course, scored that goal. But uh, I have to point out that may- maybe it was because I, antici- I anticipate that he will be an Arsenal player in the next couple of weeks. I thought Johnny Evans was excellent. He should not be playing at left back. I don't know why Pulis forces him to. But even at left back, I thought Johnny Evans was a standout player in this game, had some excellent crosses. Uh, one of the things that people don't realize about Johnny Evans is that he's truly two-footed. He's actually dominantly right-footed, but he's played from the left because his crossing and passing with his left foot is excellent. Uh, I thought he was very good at advanced situations. He was breaking up play very well. So if if Wenger watched this game, which I'm sure he did, I think he'll be really looking, up to, uh, looking to sign up uh, Johnny Evans, uh, especially given their defensive uh, issues. Chris, Swansea, a team that you thought is going to get relegated. All of us thought that they'll be bottom half at at most. Beat Burnley, another potential relegation candidate, well, likely relegation candidate. Before you, uh, Between our, our last recording and today, uh, Swansea actually sold their captain, Ashley Williams, to Everton. They started Lorente up top, which we expected, Routledge and Barrow on either side. Sigurdsson didn't start. And yet, somehow, they deserve to win this game. And not only deserve to win this game, probably uh, convincingly deserve to win this game. Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, the, the way you kind of introduced the question there, I'm still not convinced that much on Swansea because I thought defensively they looked like they had a real big error in them. Um, the the way they handled Andre Gray wasn't really the best, in, in my yeah. opinion. I think we saw little flickers from the attack. Obviously, we saw what Lorente was was brought for in in terms of the goal and everything. I just I don't know. I just have a bad feeling about Swansea this season. And I, you know, I could be wrong. It wouldn't be the first. It wouldn't be the last time. I just have this feeling that there will come a point in the season where the players they've got, it's just not going to be enough to to keep them up. Because even this, I don't think Burnley were that impressive. And in fact. Even saying that, it was, if it wasn't for some fantastic goalkeeping from Lucas Fabianski, they could right. have easily come away with a point themselves. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Maybe I oversold how good Swansea were because it, there were two excellent saves, one right at the end of the game by Fabianski and one early on in the in the game uh, that kept uh, a clean sheet for Swansea. Uh, Burnley, definitely, I agree. Andre Gray was terrific. The the, the problematic areas was uh, for, that Burnley created were when... Andre Gray was taking on the defenders at Swansea. And I think that's where your hesitation about that defense comes from. And it's, I think it's well uh, well valid right there. Uh, and also, it's important to notice uh, to note that Federico Fernandez 
pulled uh, Fernando Torres, probably one of the misses of the season. If you haven't seen uh, that, make sure you YouTube it. Middlesbrough draws 1-1 with Stoke Morgan. Um, the the standout thing for me, of course, was was a good free kick by Shakiri. But I thought from a Middlesbrough perspective, Gaston Ramirez and Negredo linked up really well. And, and that... Uh, that is a promising thing if you're if you if you want Middlesbrough to stay in the league this season. No, you're right. You got to have the two big guys, and Ramirez has been there for a little bit now, um, so he kind of knows Itor Karanka's system. I think Negredo. It's funny how he kind of got demonized out on his way out of City, and then that you know at Valencia under um, oh god, I can't even remember who the manager was there uh, when they had him, but I mean he he just he's had such over the last two years. Nuno, I think, was the, the mm. manager there. Um, Nuno Espirito, that's who it was, yeah. And, um, you know, the fact that I think he's just relishing the chance that a team has picked him up and is more than willing to give him chances to play. I mean, that's that's what he wants to do. He's proven that he can be a goal scorer. He's not going to, you know, obviously at this point you don't expect him to light it up, but I think given the chances, he could absolutely be a fantastic signing. For Middlesbrough on there. I mean, for me, the biggest glaring thing was the fact that they started Victor Valdez over Dimi Constantopoulos, mm. who has been at the club for so, so long and done so, so much. I mean, opening day, you kind of got to give it to that guy who's, especially when the guy that you're putting him over is Victor Valdez. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's made better. I thought, yeah, Valdez did okay. I, I, I think uh, it will be. I don't know. I mean, I think Valdez is a very good goalkeeper. I think we discussed this last week. Uh, but one thing we didn't discuss last week about Valdez is that he's barely played in two two years now. Uh, even while he was at United, he played a couple of games. He played for the reserves. He'd come back from that long-term knee injury. So, um, yeah, it, it will be, you know, uh, maybe a career-saving season for Valdez. Chris, the, the other game, that last game we need to talk about in terms of review is City's win against Sunderland. When the when the uh, team sheets came out, Chris, I think a lot of eyebrows were raised. First of all, no Joe Hart. Caballero started. But the other thing that I didn't realize until maybe 30 minutes into the game is that Kolarov was playing at center back. I, mm. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen that before. And and it, for the most part, except for one run by Defoe that led to a goal, it worked really well. It did. I think... This is the, the thing is that people, I think, for the most part, are, are very ready and or willing to, to criticise Pep Guardiola this season. Mm. I think his ability at times to fashion players into unconventional positions relative to their career and, and perception is a skill that will help him a lot at Manchester City. Yeah, and that's true. Mascherano at Barcelona, uh, Philip Lahm at Bayern. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, especially in defensive positions, apparently. Yeah, I mean, Javi Martinez. Uh, Javi Martinez, right, mm-hmm. is someone that that spoke about this. I think it was to ESPN. He said that in a in a Pep Guardiola team, playing defensive midfield is not massively different um, in terms of what it requires of you. And I think if you look at that game yesterday, as you said yourself, there, bar the default goal, there wasn't a wealth of chances now. I think you could form a decent argument to say that some of that was Sunderland's style and what they wanted to try and achieve. Also, some of it was that City kind of dominated things. I think they had beyond a line share of the possession. It was right. very much like every game. I think, I think that like we've six seen times probably. the number of passes Sunderland did, something like that. Which is yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's that 
you know, that Cruyff notion of the best way to defend is to keep the ball because they can't score if they don't have the ball. Mm. I think that helps him. Um, I think it will also take time and we can't look to see an innovation in every game that this team plays this season. Ultimately, they got the job done. Even the own goal, for the, all the talk of an own goal, own goal being lucky, I think you have to acknowledge that you've put your opposition in a position whereby they've made a mistake. So that in itself de- deserves a degree of credit. Yeah, Jesus Navas was involved with that and he's been widely criticised for not having any finished product, but that was a good cross that contributed to a heartbreaking debut for Paddy McNair. Morgan, uh, I, I keep wondering about the the overall analysis of this game. And in some ways, I think both teams will be happy with this game. Guardiola gets the points he wanted. His, it's his first game in England. Uh, he gets the win. Might not be the prettiest win, but he saw some good possession, which we know is what he wants. He, he saw a change in style from his team. He saw Aguero have a decent game. And then on the other hand, Sunderland's uh, David Moyes will probably be pleased with the overall defensive play. It's not like City peppered the goal with chances. It's not like they created a ton of chances. And also happy with the fact that his striker, who will basically be the the reason for why they do or do not stay in the league, scored a goal. So I think both managers walk away from this game fairly happy. Yeah, I mean, as happy as you can be with losing three points. But yeah, it's... it's... You know, David Moyes does have a few things to be happy about with this team. Um, you know, you're right. They didn't, City didn't pepper the goal. They kept possession a lot. They got the PK early. So I think that really didn't put the impetus on them to, right. to have to push forward and, you know, bomb them with shots and everything. I mean, Guardiola knew who he was going up against in this game. He knew he was going up against a, a bottom half team. They didn't have to really, you know, bring out all the big guns or anything like that. But, um, for the most part, yeah. I mean, you saw a solid, steady game from City, and you saw a team in Sunderland who, bar a PK and an own goal, would have been right there, would have gotten a point or even possibly a win, I mean, if you really want to look at it that way. So, you, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you as far as that goes. I still think there's a lot of work that Sunderland has to do. I think, again, you'll see David Moyes hopefully, um, for his sake, maybe make a few more signings, possibly – a Fellaini, who knows? Um, they already got Yanazai in, if I remember correctly. Right. So yeah. on loan, yeah. He he's still trying to put together his his full version of Sunderland as we speak, and maybe take off some of that big Sam stink. But um, yeah, I mean, he you know for the first game of the year, can't be too upset with it. Chris, in in what is now a famous interview uh, with Thierry Henry, he he described the Pep Guardiola tactical system where he talked about the fact that. Uh, in in the in the first in the defensive third and the middle third of the park, uh, the the structure of Guardiola's teams is very rigid. That you move the ball around, that you keep the same position, and then once you get once you get the ball into the final third, all bets are off. That he encourages imagination, he encourages uh, creativity, and with that lens, the performance I saw from Sterling in this game kind of was emblematic of that ideology because I have not seen Sterling have as big of an impact in a game as he did against the Sunderland team since probably the, I don't know, last week in September uh, last year when when uh, City were on that run of four or five wins uh, in a row at the start of the season. So tell me what your thoughts are about Sterling. I know there's, they've, they've signed other players that will compete for that position, but I thought Sterling was terrific in this game. Yeah, I thought, he, I thought he was good. I think that's something maybe that he's needed is a little bit of structure to his game. I think he has 
talent. We've seen that. I'm, I'm just someone that believes an, an attacker like that is great. A creator like that is great. If you can give them a little bit more stability. I mean, I talked, again, this is about to take a very big drop in terms of situation, but I talked to Mike Greller about this um, because he plays a similar position to Sterling. And he talked about as he got older, he started to understand when to try and do something game-changing and when to give it back. And I think that is the kind of thing that Sterling will have to learn if he wants to achieve his potential. And I think Pep Guardiola is the perfect man to teach him that. And that's something that we need to focus on as well, is that actually for all the improvement that defenders make under him, I think attackers are much the same. When we come back for section three, we'll preview the Chelsea West Ham game and then answer a few questions we got from you guys over on Twitter. We'll be right back with section three of the World Soccer Talk podcast. Final section of the World Soccer Talk podcast tonight. On Monday, that's tomorrow, Chelsea plays West Ham at a, uh, at a 3 p.m. kickoff uh, Eastern time. Um, Morgan, let's come to you. So we're lucky to have you since you uh, allegedly are a Chelsea fan. Uh, I don't know if anyone's heard that or not. But uh, what are you? What are your? Uh, what are you looking for in this game? It's it's a game. It'll be Antonio Conte's first game. What are you looking for as as a fan in terms of the structure that Chelsea uh, that Chelsea will be providing or Conte will be providing to that team? Honestly, I'm just looking for answers at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, you kind of have an idea of what Conte is going to do. It's just, you know, I, I want to see one thing I want to see is if he does start trusting some of these youth players, obviously my, you know, big blow for me was seeing Bertrand Traore sent off the Ajax uh, on a loan for this year. I thought he was a guy that could have been poised for a breakout season in the Premier League, especially given Chelsea's lack of strikers. The main thing is going to be, you know, if and when he does um, kind of put Olaena into the defense because they've shipped off Baba Rahman and, you know, the whole right back, left back thing with Azpilicueta, where is Ivanovic going to play? And then I want to see kind of, you know, his ideas for this right now of having Diego Costa and Mishi Batshuayi, um, you know, as a two-striker formation, if they are going to play the 3-5-2, I want to see how those two work together, who does what. And if it is something that can work, you know, that they can work in cohesion together with, um, you know, and again, and how well they'll do it. Because if they start being poor, there's really not a whole lot behind them outside of Loic Remy, who is kind of waiting to see if Lukaku is coming over from Everton or if there's mm-hmm. going to be another brought in. So sticking with you, Morgan, we got a question on Twitter, which uh, links up pretty well with um with uh, your points about Chelsea, which is why haven't Chelsea signed a world-class centre-back given Conte's preferred three-five-two formation? And you see my answer that I can't say on we the We will not talk. say your version of the answer. We will edit it. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's tough. Again, I mean, you figure they were in for stones, but not as heavily as they were. By the uh, way, let me really quickly say that the gentleman asking that question was Carlos Zalvidar. Sorry, yes. go ahead, Morgan. You, Carlos. Um, yeah, I mean, they were in for stones, but not. It, it didn't seem like they were quite as heavy on them. It seems like that uh, Antonio Conte has kind of set his sights on Kalidou Koulibaly and just you know really wants to do everything he can to get him. Um, I think that's really the biggest thing right now is you've got Napoli kind of stalling, trying to get that fee as high as possible, knowing that 
Chelsea are going to be very, very uh, desperate as the season kind of starts here to pay for them. I think they're holding out for that 50 million euro uh, price tag, and Chelsea are just not willing to pay it at this point. So, Morgan, what happened with the John Stones link? Because Chelsea was linked so heavily with John Stones all of last year, and then when City moved for him, there really was no movement from Chelsea at all. Does do you think Conte just doesn't rate John Stones? I think. I mean, I think that Conte is the biggest. Uh, proponent in that happening. I don't think that he doesn't rate Stones. I just don't think he rates him at that Four price tag. Okay. Fair enough. That's the biggest thing. But then you think about it yeah. in so, this perspective. Uh, one thing Chelsea is known for is, you know, being careful about the price tag. Yeah. Well, now they are. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> now they are. Um, but again, I mean, you think about it. What did, what did City pay for Stones? It was like 48, 49, oh, yeah, I think. Yeah, almost 50, yeah. It's 50, but that was pounds, not euros, which mm-hmm. are essentially point at this at this point thanks to the brexit <laughs> um, but you know you figure okay well if that's what it was for john stones a player who is going to be a home who is a homegrown talent at that point so you've got that that goes with it who does have loads of potential he's young or you can pay that much and get kalidou kulabali who mm-hmm. again at this point isn't necessarily world renowned but of course you could argue ne- neither was really eric Bailey, but Bailey certainly looks like a very good striker stri- or not striker a defender for <laughs> right. manchester united at this point so i think because conte played you know was the juve manager for so long he kind of got to scout and see koulibaly and i just think he really really likes him i think he's the guy that he wants at this point and there's not going to be anything that dissuades him from it so that's probably we'll see i i think You'll end up seeing it come, you know, in the next week or so. You'll probably end up seeing Koulibaly at Chelsea, and then you'll see Napoli in turn go for either Maximovic from Torino or one of the other uh, fantastic young center backs that are out there in Europe right now. Chris, while Chelsea is a black box, we have no idea what how they're going to line up tomorrow. What uh, uh, you know, all the questions Morgan uh, rightfully raises. We do know what to expect from West Ham. We are going to see some counterattacking football. We're going to see. Uh, a lot of speed on the wings. Uh, we're going to see forwards that like to attack the ball. So West Ham will be looking at this game and thinking to themselves, here's a chance for us to actually undo Chelsea once more. Definitely. I think West Ham are an incredibly ambitious club at this point. They they want to, I think, establish themselves not just in the Premier League, but more importantly, in the city of London. And Part of doing that is making the Champions League. I think also a part of that is beating their rivals. And you could argue there is never a better time to play Chelsea because this is the first time they will kick a ball competitively under Antonio Conte. So there is a lot to still be learned about his team, not just from from an objective uh, outsider's perspective, but also for him. So I think West Ham might be tempted for this game, to be truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, let's let's talk about a few questions here. Morgan, uh, first one to you. Myron Theusen asks, potential breakout stars for the season. Breakout stars for the season. Um, I mean, are we talking youth or are we talking because players players that haven't really made you know haven't been heard of too much, like like a Rashford last season, maybe. Ah, okay. See again, I you know I had a good Chelsea answer for this, but they shipped him off the Ajax. <laughs> um, I mean, I you know I think that if things go well, I think you could see a guy like Nathan Ake, mm-hmm. um, kind of really establishing himself at Bournemouth, even though that was kind of a sideways move for him. 
Uh, I mean, if Everton continue with the way that they're going to go, I mean, maybe a guy like Brendan Galloway could step up right. and really take over that Stones mantle. I mean, how many times have we seen the one guy go and then the next guy steps up and looks even better than the guy before? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that I'm, he could certainly be one on there. I think uh, the problem is, is that you see a lot of these big money moves and a lot of these big money players come in. I mean, you can't really say somebody that you've spent 25 30 million pounds on and oh i didn't expect him to be this good you know that's i think that was what you're seeing kind of watering down a lot of the stuff and that's why you need to look more at for me at least the youth players obviously i spent a lot of time you know enjoying the chelsea youth myself that's why i'm a little biased when that comes forward but how do you, you know, manage maybe... to watch all those games out in belgium and holland that's pretty amazing well, the problem—I mean, I watch as much as I can on the computer um, when I have the free time. But a lot of it is—it's the same way that everybody follows players. I mean, I follow them through um, loan reports. I end up following through, you know, re- just reading up on them. And I do a lot of school watching on the apps too. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of get an idea of how a player plays. I mean, obviously, I'm not a full-time scout like Kristen Hennage, where I can sit there and take in hundreds of hours of. Uh, tape like that but yeah you, know, you do the best you can and just kind of follow along so chris break breakout star for you um i think nathan redmond hmm. i think i mean look the, the comparisons with thierry Henry that were made i think are a little bit premature i just feel as if with all due respect to, to norwich i think he's in a slightly better situation for him and his talent right now he will, I think, have less of a burden placed on him from an attacking perspective. And that should, in theory, allow him to flourish. Gotcha. Morgan, uh, who will win the Champions League this year? That's from Carlos Saldivar. Who will win the Champions League this year? Um, I'm going to go with Barca. I mean, it's it's a cop-out answer, to be honest with you, but it just seems like they're kind of that every other year team. You can almost focus on them winning it at this point. So I'll go Barca. I'm actually going to go Bayern this year. I, I think there's. I, think I love myself to Ancelotti. I think that they will do really, really well this year. Chris, Champions League winner for you. Uh, Barcelona. Okay. Safe answers. Safe, safe answers. Safe answers. We none of us. Really... <laughs> Just yeah, you know what it is. It's like a, it's it's so, so in many early. ways it is yeah it's so irrelevant to even stay because you've seen none of the teams play mm-hmm. in European competition. I think once you've at least seen them play a group game, you can you know kind of gauge a little bit better. But at this point, you it's potluck. Yeah, and I mean you can it's you know Barcelona is it's like every other year and you know they're not going to win it back to back. They didn't win last year, so you might as well throw them out this year. Hmm. Fair enough. Uh, let's get to the last question of the podcast. And Robert uh, asked us about our thoughts on Olympic soccer so far. Chris, your thoughts uh, on what you've seen? It could be men's, women's, both, whatever you watched. I think it's been a little bit underwhelming, personally. Hmm. Um, I think Brazil have struggled. I mean, I, I personally almost expected that because I don't think that team ever enjoys playing on home soil. Um the the women's side of things, I've only really been privy to the US's run. Yeah. Um, I thought there was a nice narrative with Sundhaj and, and the US. Um, I'm personally not that sold on Alex Morgan moving forward for the women's national team. But that in itself is not based on a huge uh, sample size of games. 
I think maybe the US is, is ready for a change. I think from a coaching perspective and a tactical perspective, I think they've got some talented players, definitely. Um, I think get the name she came on. I think her name is Sinclair. Mm. Um, she was tagged. I was reading kind of tweets and Kayla Knapp from Fox, um, who is a, a wonderful person and an even better writer, was talking about how she sees her and Mallory Pugh as the future of the US women's national team. I like Mallory Pugh. I think she is very talented. Um, I'm just going to call her Sinclair at this point. I hope that's her name. I think she runs into too many blind alleys um, to really succeed at this precise moment. She's got all the physicals to succeed. She reminds me a bit of uh, Aluko for England mm-hmm. in the sense that she has brilliant physical uh, assets, but from a, a kind of decision-making standpoint, she's just really poor. My takeaways uh, for the Olympics uh, kind of – Jumping off of what Chris has said, uh, for the U.S. women's national team, I think that the talking point of Hope Solo is uh, is valid is important because uh, she's you know she's going to go down in the game as one of the greatest goalkeepers for either men's or women's team. But uh, she's not a good role model. She is um, what she said. What'd you say, Morgan? She is a terrible human being. It just has to be said. She's not, I, I wouldn't go that far, but yeah, she's not, she's at the very, at the best thing you can say about her is that she's not a good role model for kids. And, uh, it, what she said about the, 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 what she said after the game, uh, was unacceptable uh, as a professional and uh, as a sportsman, especially in a sport uh, at the Olympics. Um, so that needs to be said. And then, uh, speaking about Brazil, I watched the, uh, last night I watched the Brazil Colombia game. And I thought it was a very good game. Uh, I thought it was very good to watch. It was end-to-end. Um, I thought Marquinhos and defense was excellent. Neymar had a good game. Um, so, yeah, that was one of my takeaways. And I, I'm looking forward to what will probably be a Brazil-Germany final. Uh, it's Brazil, Honduras, Nigeria, and Germany left uh, in the semifinal round. Uh, and the Brazil-Germany final is very, very likely. Uh, in the women's section, it's probably going to be uh, it's Brazil versus Sweden and Germany versus Canada uh, in the women. So let's uh, wrap up here, guys. Next week, we'll be back with our review of oh, of game week two in the Premier League. Uh, before you hit, uh, before you delete this podcast, go leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. Uh, and thank you for everybody for listening. On behalf of everyone here at World Soccer Talk, on behalf of Kristen Hanage and Morgan Green, I bid you to enjoy your football this week.